Our tech people are facing sound challenges this morning, so we hope everybody will be patient with them on that and appreciative for the skills that they bring to this special kind of work anyhow. Uh, I'm glad to be able to fill in again for Corey so that uh, he and Ashley can have a weekend away. It's always a good time to do that, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, and I know that uh, last month was Pastor Appreciation Sunday, and uh, we appropriately did some things for that, but I do uh, at the same time hope that that's not the only time you show your appreciation to, Carrie, to Corey and to, to David. Uh, it's been a tough time since the pandemic started, uh, and that's only been made more or created more burden for them uh, as we've uh, been moving toward a, a new building and all the things that go with that. So uh, please show your appreciation for them. And while we're at it, uh, appreciation for the music team that leads us today and our tech team is str struggling with things right now. Show them that. <laughs> Uh, we will be continuing with the theme that uh, Corey introduced last week, and that is Jesus as gentle and lowly. And I'll be looking at John chapter 13 in just a minute. Will you join me in prayer uh, before we get to that text? Uh, Lord, we've come here with all kinds of things this morning, some good, some troublesome. Uh, we've made plans for this time, but we want to give it to you right now to do with as you will. Uh, may the things I say be clear and true in Christ's name. Amen. The story is found in uh, John chapter 13. We'll begin at the first verse. It's one you should be familiar with. And one last apology. I, I had cataract surgery this summer, and it did a lot of wonderful things for me, but it messed up my reading. <laughs> so uh, this will be the first time I've tried to speak with reading glasses. We'll see how that goes, okay? Uh, I didn't even notice it till I pulled <laughs> Okay, John chapter 13, beginning at the first verse. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone is clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. 
Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The word of the Lord. Well, we don't know if the room was rented or if a family that was friendly to Jesus had volunteered it. Either way, whether by oversight or miscommunication, there was a serious problem. And Jesus took advantage of it to make one of the most profound teaching moments that we find in the New Testament. Though there's some debate over calendar and exact timing and that kind of thing, this is certainly a very close meal in the Passover tradition that Jesus is sharing with his disciples as he gets ready to go to the cross. Passover was a solemn meal remembering the redeeming work of God bringing Abraham's offspring out of slavery in Egypt over a thousand years before. Imagine with me the, the disciples gathered around the table, reclining on cushions, resting their heads on one hand and the other hand to reach for the food and to feed themselves. Their, their heads are gathered around the center of the spokes of the, of the, of the center of the, of the table and their feet are stretched out behind them like spokes on a wheel. And the servant brings the first dish and sets it in the middle of the table for them to share. And it's clear that etiquette has been broken. The, the expected Gentile slave has not yet come to wash their feet in preparation for the meal. See, washing the feet of guests was not just about cleanliness and hygiene in Jesus' day, although that was important. It was also a hospitality that was shown toward honored guests. It was something performed by the lowliest of servants or even a slave. And tradition was that it would not be a Jew but a Gentile that actually did the work of washing feet. Now, I kind of suspect that there were some nervous looks around the table as this happened, maybe even some anger. Who planned this? How could you forget the foot washing? You do it. I'm not going to do it. You do it. And somehow in the midst of all that anger and frustration around the table, nobody paid any attention to what Jesus was doing because Jesus had quietly gotten up from the circle and gone to the side of the room and taken off his outer robe and picked up the towel and wrapped his waist with it and got the basin and the pitcher and coming to, back to the table at the feet of each, got down on his knees and washed and dried their feet. But by the time Jesus got to Peter, 
it was clear what was happening and who was doing it. See, a, a member of the dinner party would never wash the feet of the others who were attending it, and certainly an honored teacher like Jesus would not wash the feet of his students. The teacher was expected to lead the traditional dinner through its carefully prescribed questions and teachings about the Passover. Now, the, the, the disciples may not have fully understood who Jesus was and what he was about at this point in time, but they did understand this. They'd been raised right by their mamas. They knew who was supposed to wash feet and who wasn't supposed to wash feet. And so Peter recoils at the very thought of Jesus washing his feet, and he spoke what I'm certain all the others were thinking at the very same time. And as usual, he got it wrong. Seems to be a habit for Peter. He rejected Jesus' attempt to wash his feet, but Jesus insisted. And he used those objections of Peter to teach something important about what was happening here. And eventually, Peter relented. I'm still not sure he really understood what was happening, but he relented and let Jesus wash his feet. And when Jesus finished, Jesus went back to the corner of the room and put his robe back on and put away the towel and the basin and resumed his place of honor at the table. And I suspect it was pretty quiet at that point. Embarrassment, anger, uncertainty, go down the list. I think they were quiet. See, traditionally, the Passover dinner begins with the child asking a question like, how is this night different from all other nights? And it set the stage for the teaching of the events of, of uh, the Exodus and how God stooped down to redeem his people from slavery. But tonight, the teacher began with the questions, and it was a different question. Do you understand what I have done for you? And Jesus' unexpected and outrageous act of extravagant service here is, recalls what Mary of Bethany had done just the chapter before in preparation for this week. Remember, she washed Jesus' feet with that ointment, that perfume, and dried it with her hair. And Jesus interprets that to the angry disciples. That's another interesting thing. Jesus interprets that of her love for him and anointing him for burial, which is going to be happening in a few days. It's an act of extravagant love for Jesus. But also in the context of Passover, the washing of the feet echoes God hearing the cries of his people in slavery in Egypt and coming down, bowing down, stooping down to bring them out of that land. Jesus tells us, or John tells us at the very beginning of this story that this is a demonstration of Jesus' crazy love for us. This is not just a show that's being put on, and it's not one more thing on Jesus' to-do list to check off for the week of Passover. It flows naturally from Jesus' identity. It comes from who Jesus is, gentle and lowly. 
That attitude is essential to Jesus' ministry and central to his reason for coming. Now the disciples at this might wonder, how could he get any lower? But that would be answered the next morning as Jesus was hoisted upon a cross and hanged naked between heaven and earth. It's a startling idea. It's an offensive idea. And like Peter, we recoil at the very thought of something like this. But it's because we don't understand God. You see, Adam and Eve had been fed misinformation about God in the Garden of Eden. God's a liar. God can't be trusted. God's motives are not what you think they are. God's only about coercive power and mindless obedience. And that kind of misinformation still lingers with us today. The, the rest of the Bible all the way up to the coming of Christ could be read as an effort to create or to correct that ancient lie about who Jesus is and, or who God is and how, what God's relationship to the world is. Finally, God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to demonstrate once and for all the true heart of God and to redeem all of creation from the consequences of the misinformation that started back in Eden and still saturates the world around us today. God's heart is gentle and lowly. It's a heart so full of love that Jesus stooped low not just to wash feet, but to lay naked on a cross while he was nailed and bound in preparation for his death. In that moment, God's heart was laid bare for all to see. And it's a startling sight. The full extent of his love for us was on display, hoisted high for all to see. The disciples may have been with Jesus three years at this point, but they still didn't get this gentle and lowly thing. And to be honest, most of us don't either. Last week, we marked the anniversary of a dark moment in human history, Kristallnacht, night of broken glass, November 9th, 1938. Hitler's Nazi thugs went on a rampage against the Jews in Germany, especially in Berlin. With the police standing by, German stores and buildings and synagogues were all smashed. Homes, hospitals, schools were ransacked and demolished. Over 7,000 Jewish businesses and homes were that were damaged or destroyed. Jewish men, women, and children were taken out into the streets and beaten and killed. 30,000 Jewish men that we know about were rounded up that one night and taken off to concentration camps. It marked a transition in the Nazi relationship and movement and treatment of Jews. It became harsher, more violent, more open than it had ever been before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young German pastor at that time. He had opposed Hitler from the very beginning and the tendency of many churches to embrace Nazism. 
he was in hiding when Kristallnacht happened, but the next day he went to Berlin and opened support of the Jews. Bonhoeffer was eventually implicated in a plot against Hitler and arrested in 1943 and was sent first to the Buchenwald camp and then to the Flossenburg camp. Without trial, he was hanged on April 9th, 1945, just days before liberating allies came. According to one eyewitness, he was stripped bare and then marched into the camp courtyard along with the others who were going to be executed and says that he knelt and prayed for about an hour before he was led to the gallows himself and killed. We don't know what happened to his body. It was probably thrown on the pile with the others and set fire. Bonhoeffer wrote a lot of challenging things, some of them from that prison cell, including the cost of discipleship. But I bring him up today because of a little essay he wrote called, Who is Christ for Us? You see, if Christ is not a living reality for us right here and right now, then the whole idea is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. The living Christ comes to each and every one of us, each and every second of each and every day. Christ comes for us, not against us. Christ comes for us, meeting real needs. Christ comes for us as an example. Christ comes for us, gentle and lowly. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples is a dramatic lesson for how God is for us. Jesus' question, do you understand what I have done for you, was loaded, and it helps us understand his tense exchange with, G with Peter, which really shows our exchange with Jesus over this. Obviously, Peter and the others and we don't really understand what Jesus was doing. First, Jesus comes for us, not against us. He doesn't come in anger or in condemnation. If you grew up in church, like I did, you learned John 3.16. For God so loved the world, and the Greek word is cosmos there, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, we got that one. But the verse right after that, verse 17, is essential, and it's rarely memorized at the same time. Verse 17 says right after that, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Yes, judgment is real. But God's heart made flesh in Jesus Christ remains gentle and lowly. God's desire is salvation, not condemnation. Especially in the book of Isaiah, we can see that God's anguish is overwhelming, even as judgment is being poured out on the rebellious people of Israel. God takes no delight in exercising judgment. God's not some cosmic killjoy just waiting around for us to do something wrong so he can stomp us. That's one of the persistent lies of Eden. In reading the story, did you notice that Judas is still with the disciples at this point? 
Judas shared that last Passover table with Jesus. And scandal of scandals, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. How low could Jesus go? Judas did not deserve Jesus' servanthood. He was not good enough. None of them were. In a few hours, Peter would deny Jesus three times. The other disciples would want, run away and hide. The only one left was the teenager John there at the foot of the cross with the women. And still, Jesus washed their feet, all of them. That's good news because none of us are good enough either. Just as Jesus washed the feet of all those unworthy disciples at that table, he comes to us. He does not force himself, but he offers himself gentle and lowly. You see, God's grace is greater than all our sin. That's more than a line in a song. It's reality. In Jesus Christ, gentle and lowly, God's heart for salvation, not condemnation, was revealed. Second, Christ comes for us meeting real needs. Now still, the foot washing story here, I think, is not primarily about salvation, at least as we commonly understand it. Jesus made that clear in his exchange with Peter. There's a, a meaningful shift between the words bathing and washing in there. And at least as Jesus is talking about it here, bathing is something that's thorough and intended to be done once, but washing is something we do occasionally and sporadically and again and again. I, th I think for Jesus, bathing here is a subtle reference to baptism, but I don't want to push that too hard, and I don't think he's implying anything magical happens during bathing, or but during baptism. But washing is something we have to do again and again. If I get, I may have a wonderful shower in the morning, but if I get my hands dirty in the afternoon, I gotta wash my hands. I don't take a shower again, I wash my hands. And I might have to do it again and again and again. So there's something happening here that's different than salvation. It's God's continual care for us in washing us of things. That certainly means washing us in the act of forgiveness. I think that's what John talks about in his letters, but there's more to it than that. Because I don't think the story is primarily about salvation. So what is it about? I think in one sense, dirty, nasty feet are a mundane personal experience concern in the here and now. We would think that dirty feet are not something of sufficient importance that Jesus would be troubled with it. And yet he is. Jesus got down on his knees to wash those dirty feet. That's reality, down and dirty. The lesson's key and it's also unsettling. Nothing, nothing is too mundane or insignificant for Jesus. Nothing's going on with you that troubles you that's too low to concern Jesus. 
because Jesus loves, to, uh, loves us, he'll come to us gentle and lowly in the middle of our afflictions, whatever they are and how insignificant they may be seem to us. Jesus is about real needs in the mess of existence in a dirty world. Sometimes we have so spiritualized Jesus and salvation that we forget that. Jesus cares about what's happening to us every day. Yes, Bible passages have a, may have a deeper second meaning to them, but I don't think that gives us permission to skip over the first meaning, the plain meaning of things. Jesus really fed the hungry and really gave sight to the blind. Now, that does not mean that all the hungry are fed or all the sick are healed. The gospel is not about some divinely guaranteed health and wealth. God is not some cosmic ATM that we can withdraw from anytime we want to at our convenience. Still, Jesus comes to us in the midst of mess of life. That's what he's all about. And usually he comes in a way that we don't expect. Yes, miracles happen, but more often, it seems to me, the real miracle is the unexpected presence of Christ. The poet in Psalm 74 <clears throat> looked around at the ways that the wicked prosper while he seemed to be in anguish all the time. And he asked himself, have I wasted my time with God? If this is how it is, if the people who do evil do great, and I'm trying not to, and things are so bad for me, it's a waste of my time. But he comes to the conclusion at the end of that psalm that it's the presence of God that makes life worthwhile. It's not whether or not I've got a big checking account or I'm healthy all the time. Is God with me? I think that's exactly what's being talked about here. Like the old hymn celebrates, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Not some of them, all of them. I think that's what the New Testament is talking about. I think that's what this story is about. Yes, Jesus' work is about salvation, but God's perspective on salvation is bigger than ours. Salvation is not only about getting Jesus to issue a ticket for the flight to heaven. Jesus hangs around, takes care of our baggage, serves refreshments, and calms our fears. Third, Christ comes for us as an example. Jesus is pretty direct about this. He said in verse 15, I have set you an example. Jesus expected his followers to wash the feet of others just as he continues to wash our feet. That's the real focus of this particular passage. Paul celebrated the goal of discipleship in his letter to the Ephesians, and I think there's a connection between Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 and, the, and, the, and this present story of foot washing as the example, because in, in Ephesians, Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering or as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The foot washing, John tells us at the very beginning of his passage, is a preview 
of the full extent of Jesus' love for us. That would be finalized on the cross. But unlike the cross, <clears throat> the foot washing is identified as an example and a perpetual practice among those who follow Jesus. We cannot go to the cross for somebody else. We can't do that on behalf of someone. But we can wash feet like Jesus washed feet. Now, I know churches that literally do foot washing. Some do it as part of every communion service. Others make it a part of special times on Monday, Thursday, recreating the events that lead up to, to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I've never been part of such a church, but on very few occasions I have found myself participating in such a service. Regular churches tend to ridicule the practice, <clears throat> but I found it to be a solemn, challenging moment. Several years ago, we did a variation on it as we washed the hands of volunteers as we began to start a Habitat for Humanity project. If entered into properly, <clears throat> it can be a very moving moment. Still, I think the, the literal practice misses the point of the passage. Followers of Jesus are to become gentle and lowly themselves, serving others in their real needs, just as Jesus serves us in our real needs. And wonder of wonders, we become more Christ-like in the process. That's what discipleship is all about. Let me close by giving you another example, or at least trying to. <clears throat> the muscle cells of the heart are unique in the body. And those cardiac cells are the muscles that make the heart pump. That's how it works. Unlike any other muscle cell, cardiac muscle cells branch and interconnect with one another. And those cardiac cells naturally pulse on their own, even when they're in isolation. But when they get interconnected, they beat as one. Those cells have become synchronized now. They become a single muscle in your body working to pump that blood around. And when they're out of sync, dangerous things happen. That's what arrhythmias are all about. You may need a pacemaker or more, something more dramatic like a jump start to get things going again. But the whole idea is that massive muscle, millions of cells are doing the same thing together because they're interconnected with one another and they're reaching and they're sharing signals with one another about what they're doing. Over 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, meaning God. I don't think he would object to the update, our hearts are restless until they are in sync with the heart of God. The followers of Christ have been sent into the world the same way that Christ came into the world. Our hearts beating in sync with the heart of God reveal what God is all about. Whose feet will you wash this week?
Will it be a colleague, or a friend, or maybe a perfect stranger in a chance meeting? Whose feet will you wash this week, and how? Will it be quietly sitting with them sharing grief, or a gentle word of hope and encouragement in a tough time? or maybe a kind act of care and generosity for someone who is struggling with the necessities of life. Whose feet will you wash this week? Don't do it to earn a spot in the kingdom. Don't do it out of obligation. Do it because you are allowing Jesus to synchronize your heart with God's. Let's pray while our musicians come. Lord, we confess that we are like Peter. We first of all reject what you offer us, and then we want it all just for ourselves. And we forget that you have called us to wash the feet of others, to be gentle and lowly just like you are, to become the heart of God in this place and, show, and so reveal God here. Help us, Lord to see as you see and do as you would. In Christ's name, amen.